Podcast New York. What's up, Dueling Decades? This is Wax. Peace to all you guys, and uh, thanks for having me on the show. Will it be the 90s or the 80s? Beanie Babies or Crack Babies? Will it be Nirvana or Madonna? Maybe Britney, maybe Whitney. Do you like new metal or new wave? Dave Grohl or Super Dave? I don't know. But now the battle begins. Dueling Decades. Let's see who wins. Dueling Decades. Broadcasting from the Podcast New York Studios, it's the adult-only retro game show where the decades battle for supremacy. Because it's your history, we just fight for it. Welcome back to Dueling Decades. I am Mark James, and this week, I'll be representing March 17th through the 23rd of 1996 in this week experience battle. Let's meet the other duelers and the decades they will be fighting for. First off, firing up the flux capacitor and going back to the 80s, say hello to Man Crush. What's up? It's Man Crush. I got March 16th to the 22nd, 1986. And I just want to say there's some big things coming to the show. Uh, people have been asking us for months. Judges have been asking us for months. Why isn't this on video? Well, I mean, coming very soon, we're going to have it on video. However, after next week's episode, we will be shifting to a bi-weekly basis so we can focus kind of on developing the video product more because unfortunately with doing this show and the research week after week after week, it takes up a lot of time and way too much time to develop video correctly. So please bear with us. And after next week's episode, spend some time. You can go through our back catalog. There's over 100 episodes. And also, we are starting our Patreon as well. So that's going to be www.patreon.com forward slash dueling decades. We're going to have lots of extras on there. You can already check out the different tiers that we have. We're going to have live trivia is going to be coming back, daily audio trivia. And once we get enough signups, we're going to start Mike and I, uh, maybe Mark. I don't know who else is going to be involved, but we're going to have that grimy 70s show that we've talked about a little bit on the show for our patrons. And also, uh, we have already started releasing some of these on there, but it's the Dueling Decades origin episodes. Uh, there's a lot of cool interviews that we did over the past eight years that we're going to start putting up there that aren't available anywhere else except for on our Patreon. I think, Mark, what was the first one that we put up there? Uh, was it Larry Kenny? Larry Kenny. Yeah. Lion Lion-O, from man. Thundercats. You got to catch that one. I guarantee you, if you stick around to the end, it'll raise the hairs on the back of your neck once he does the Thundercat call. It's pretty damn awesome. Uh, but we're going to have all their stuff. You could watch us record live. You could pick the years. You could be a judge if you get that fifth year. Uh, we're going to have a lot of cool stuff on there. So check that out. But in the meantime, we're here doing another episode for you. But that's what I have. And also joining us on the panel and trucking with the 70s. Welcome back to the show, Mike Ranger. Hello, everyone. I'm Mike Ranger. And uh, this week I have March 19th through 25th of 1978. And as always here on the show, we need somebody to adjudicate all of this awesomeness. And you will know this week's judge as the Grammy-nominated frontman of the Plain White Tees. And now, with his solo project, Million Miler, all rise and welcome Judge Tom Higginson. What is up, you guys? I'm stoked. What's up? I'm stoked. Yes. I, I'm already, like, debating, like, what... Like, you know, you got the freaking 80s, 70s, and 90s. Those are like, you know, arguably the three best decades ever. So I'm excited to see what you guys pull out. 
I don't know. It might be a, a, a toss up here. I'm kind of partial to the eighties with my, that million miler side project, like you said, but uh, I don't know. The nineties were like, I was like in high school and stuff. A lot of good memories. Yeah. You're right around our age though. Like you're, what are you? 42, 43. I just turned 42. Yeah. All right. So yeah, you're, yeah. you grew up in the same era that we did. So this should be fun. Oh yeah. Can't wait. Ladies and gentlemen, the following contest will be held under Dueling Decades rules. The judges' coin flip shall decide who picks first out of the five Dueling Decades categories. Movies, television, music, news, and hot products. A judge's ruling will determine who wins each round, allowing the victor to choose the next available category. The first three rounds are worth one point each, with rounds four and five worth two points apiece. And in the event of a tie, after all five rounds, we will go to a final wildcard round. Remember, duelers, to review the show. Listen, subscribe, and play along at home. It's time for more Dueling Decades. All right, let's go right down to our celebrity guest judge, Tom Higginson, for the coin toss. So I've got this, uh, this doubloon straight from the Goonies here, okay? There's a cross on one side, so we'll call that heads. It's like X marks the spot. And then there's just like a random doodle on the other side. So heads is the X, tails is the other side. Going to flip it. Right. Go for it, Mike. I'm going to go tails. Okay. It is actually heads. It's the cross, the X. So heads it is. All right, oh. Man Crush, you won the coin toss and you get control of the board. That means you get to select our first category. All right, uh, let's go music first. I, I guess it's fitting. I don't know if this is my strongest pick, playing with a little bit of. Uh, I know how this game works, so we're we're gonna go with the weakest first for mine. So let's go. Let's go music. Let's go March twenty second, nineteen eighty six. And I mentioned this last week, and it could never be more true this week. You need to have a connection to your picks that really makes them work. And this week, nothing spoke to me. So I found this release. It's a single which is one of Billboard's songs of the year for 1986. And I honestly had forgotten all about the song. Honestly, it's not my cup of tea. Uh, but then I listened to it three days ago, and the fucking chorus has been stuck in my head ever since. <laughs> no matter what I've listened to afterwards, I'll just be sitting down eating lunch, and my head just wanders off to, on my own, on my own. Do you guys know the song? I Like, I can't stop, but... I don't know if uh, I don't know any of the other lyrics except for that. Uh, so hopefully it didn't affect anybody else like it did me. But if it did, uh, you're welcome. Uh, but as I mentioned before, this is the number four song in the 1986 Billboard Song of the Year chart. It reached number one on the Billboard Hot 100 for three weeks. And it's actually Patti LaBelle and Michael McDonald's biggest song of their careers, which is absolutely criminal, I think, honestly. Uh, but the funny thing here, like Patti LaBelle and Michael McDonald, they never actually met one another until after this duet was already released. So after this was done was the first time they met. They both recorded on separate coasts. They never sung the song together until they appeared on The Tonight Show together, which wow. is wild. I mean, that's like commonplace in 2021 for people to be in different places like we are now. We're sitting in four different states doing this. But in 1986, this is a pretty big deal. Uh, but I mean, thinking back to the meat of the song about being on your own. I suppose like Burt Bacharach, who's actually the producer and songwriter for this one, he wanted them to literally be on their own. 
So they did that. Even the music video was filmed apart. I don't know if you guys remember the video, but it was one of them sweet 80s split screens where it was right down the middle yeah. and they did the exact same thing. Um, and I'll, I'll just give you one last time on my own. Tom, do you do you know the song? Um, you know what? I don't think I do. Oh, <laughs> so, son of a bitch. <laughs> I don't know if that's good, but you know, um, I, I totally know what you mean. I was going to throw one more thing. Like for the eighties, it's kind of like a feature, right? It was like those two artists yeah. uh, from what you, the way you're describing it, which also was kind of ahead of its time because obviously now it's commonplace to have artists yeah. together, but back then not so much. So that's kind of cool. All right. Well, that sucks that you didn't know, but that's why I picked it in the first round. That's what we did. <laughs> yeah. I was going to ask, are you guys trying to like, like you knew I was going to be the judge. So were you like thinking like, okay, what songs or what things are, are Tom going to like? Or is that how you kind of went I about know. it? Like I, I don't really usually gear for the judge, especially when we have celebrity guest judges, because we don't know what you guys are thinking. We don't know your lives. When we have our friends on like when uh, Dave's on here or John was on here back in the day all the time we know what those guys like so we would kind of pander that to them a little bit but i think for you guys we don't know like sure like you, you don't even know this song you could have been you know i, might have been I thought for song. sure you would be like oh plain white tees patty labelle same right up the same alley <laughs> and He's after doing it. the show for a while it's just something like we've picked a television show that the judge was on or starring if they in. forgot and lost the round because they didn't want to pick a show that they were on. So you never know. Sure. It could go either way. <laughs> That's sure. So true. That was Vernon Wells. Man crush. I'm not going to count you out. I'm not going to count you out yet because we'll see what these other guys come up with. You know? <laughs> yeah. Let's see. Let's see. All right, Mike Ranger. What did you bring for the music round? Well, Mark, let me tell you, cause on uh, March 23rd, uh, 1978, uh, Bob Marley and the Whalers released Kaya, the 10th studio album uh, f from Bob Marley and the Whalers, uh, featuring the popular songs Is This Love and Satisfy My Soul. The album takes a less militant approach with most of the songs containing themes of peace, love, and marijuana. The album was remastered in 2001 and had a deluxe edition in 2013 and peaked at number 50 on the Billboard 200. Nice. Wow. Can't go wrong with some Bob Marley, man. Yeah, no, that that's that I know uh I know those songs. So <laughs> I think Mike might already be be taking the uh the lead on this round so far. Understand. And yeah, you're right. Bob Marley, it's like <laughs> you definitely can't go wrong. You know, one of the greatest all time, undisputed. So so yeah, okay, okay. I feel this one. All right, fellas. Well, my music selection is a song that was released as a single March 18th, 1996 from a German-born artist. And it's just one of those songs that upon hearing it, it just instantly takes you back. And you feel like you're walking into that college party or high school prom or even middle school gym. BuzzFeed listed this song at number 48 as their 101 greatest dance songs of the 90s. And Matt Deal from Entertainment Weekly said it was an infectious New Jack variation on Hey Joe. It topped the UK singles charts one month after its release, and it also reached number one in Zimbabwe. In America, it reached Huge. number two on the Billboard Hot 100 and went platinum, selling over 1.4 million copies. Stylus Magazine ranked the song number 40 on its list of top 51 hit wonders. 
And you know, this song, this one's for the fellas. You know, because the song tells the story of a broken-hearted man regaining his swagger and getting his groove back. And if you guys haven't figured it out by now, it's not my fault because, well, I tried to tell you so. Yes, I did. But I guess you didn't know. As the saddest story goes, baby, now I got the flow. That's right. My selection is Return of the Mac by Mark Morrison. Morrison wrote the song and he co-produced it with UK producer Phil Legg, and it actually features backup vocals from Angie Brown. The Return of the Mac beat, now that's built almost entirely out of samples, taking the guitar sounds and the drums from Genius of Love, the 1981 dance classic from the Talking Heads offshoot, The Tom Tom Club. You guys are going to remember this one because Mariah Carey sampled the same thing famously in Fantasy. And they also sampled uh, hip-hop mainstays such as Run DMC, Digital Underground, and The Treacherous Three. Kind of the approach they took with Return of the Mac was, let's take familiar samples that are already in popular songs, mix them all into a great hook, and that's what you got. Return of the Mac, March 18th, 1996. God, you know what makes nice. me hate that song? The first job I ever had was at this place. Uh, it was at the mall. It's called Home Image, yeah. and that song was like on the loop. Yes. This is back in the day where there was no radio station. It was just a loop tape, and that would come on like every single hour. It was horrible. And that, <laughs> like thinking back to it, like why would they have Return of the Mac on a retail tape? Yeah, I it don't seems know. weird. That's kind of weird. It was yeah. a huge hit, so maybe it was something to do with the record company. I don't know. It's true. They also played Fine Young Cannibals, so what can you do? Well, they always drive me crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. So, Mark, I'm going to say that was a really exceptional, I mean, that that pitch and that the, the details and the information, uh, really, really interesting and really uh, great presentation um don't be mad though i i don't know if i know this song either like how is it that big 1996 and i'm not even it's not like ringing a bell I you know, know i think uh perhaps mark should sing it yeah for sure give him the chorus well i, I gave you the opening lyrics do you want me to do the background music return of the mac return, return of the mac, of the mac. <laughs> say it again yeah <laughs> that's what it sounds like when i hear it I do 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 yes i did yes i did so everybody knows this one but me how is this I, i'm like the worst judge okay. well listen i'm i wish i didn't know it because that's all i fucking hear right now and i hate it Return of the Mac. Huh. Yeah. I, I love how tom's the singer and we're the guys singing right. to him so weird all right, well, let's toss it down to Tom Higginson for the ruling on the music round. Okay, well, like I said, Mark, you had a great presentation. Uh, a lot of good information there. Uh, I feel like I know the song, even if I don't know the song. Um, Man Crush, you know, Patti LaBelle, you usually, and, and Michael McDonald, you can't really go wrong there. Two, two legends in their own rights, but... Um, I mean, I got to go with Mike on this one because Bob Marley is, um, I don't know, he's my favorite out of, out of all those artists, out of all those songs. That's, that's my winner. I'm sorry, you guys, but, but Mike killing it so far. Nice work. Thank you. That was an easy one. That's strategy right there, Mike. 
I get handed you that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I'm man. glad you guys started with music because that's like, you know, that's probably, you would think that would be, I, I should know that shit, but uh, you know, I'm excited <laughs> to see what's next. We got, what else is next? Music, I don't know, movies, TV shows, news. And hot products. Hot products. Cool. Okay. Yeah. Cool. All right, Mike Ranger, you pick up the first point, but more importantly, you take control of the board and get to select our next category. Where are we going, man? Well, I think I'm going to go with movies, which tells you how good my pick is. <laughs> oh, man. That's yeah. early. How to get this one out of the way. Uh, well, on uh, March 22nd, 1978, on NBC aired the TV movie and Beatles-inspired mockumentary spoof, The Ruddles' All You Need Is Cash, directed and written by Monty Python's Eric Idle, starring Eric Idle, as well as some of Saturday Night Live's finest, such as Bill Murray, John Belushi, Gildner Radner, Dan Aykroyd, as well as Paul Simon, and Lorne Michaels served as a producer. Uh, the mockumentary follows the career of a, ficti a fictitious rock group, The Ruddles, consisting of band members Dirk, Ron, Barry, and Stig. Any resemblance to the Beatles is purely and satirically intentional. Par uh, the movie parodies some of uh, the Beatles' career highlights. For example, Yellow Submarine becomes Yellow Submarine Sandwich. Um, it's also important to mention that despite critical acclaim, the broadcast on NBC earned the lowest ratings of any show on American primetime television that week, <laughs> but fared much better in the wow. U.K., uh, the film released a soundtrack, a later came to home video, uh, a semi-remake in 2004, and an anthology spoof album in 1996. Wow. Damn. The Ruddles. The Ruddles. That I never heard I've of. I've never heard of that one either. I have indeed heard of that one, Mike. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big Beatles fan, so I've, I've definitely heard of The Ruddles. Uh, yeah, exactly. I've always chose to avoid it. <laughs> you know, just because I was like, I can't have them making fun of the Beatles. It's just fucking criminal. <laughs> right. Well, here's I'm, I'm a huge Beatles fan as well. I actually named my son Lennon. Nice. Um, but and I here's the funny part, though. I don't know if I've seen the whole thing, um, but I've definitely seen parts of it. And um, yeah, so I'm obviously very familiar. And I know you're the only one to go so far. But, you know, so far you got the lead in this round. So. <laughs> Way to go, Mike! Yeah, and, and a lot of good information in that one. You know, all the set, all the SNL crew. Um, I like that. The best part was, uh, you know, any any uh, what, what was it? Any? Oh, that's actually a quote from a TV Guide. Uh, any resemblance to the Beatles is purely and satirically intentional. Intentional. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> nice, Mike. Let me ask you: Is it better than Kiss Phantom at the Park, or worse? I don't think anything can beat Kiss Phantom at the Park. Phantom of the Park is fantastic. I don't know what you're talking about, man. Oh, you guys, did you guys smoke before this? Well, yeah, but that's beside the point. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Man Crush, what did you bring for the movies round? Oh, man, nothing that good. Let's go uh, March 21st, 1986. And a few months back, I made this pick for Return of the Living Dead Part 3. And I said then that usually a franchise, when it hits sequel number three, it was all she wrote. And they usually weren't that good. And on that episode, I did toss out a couple examples of part threes that were actually good, but I totally spaced out on this franchise. I don't know why, but this particular third installment is actually my favorite of the entire franchise. And I wasn't sure if that's because it was on HBO every day growing up in the 80s or because I actually liked it better. So I rewatched the first three movies of the series 
the other night. And sure enough, I do like this one the best. So let's see if, uh, if you guys share the same sentiment on this one. So at the box office, this movie debu- it debuted at number one at that week. And it brought in just about $44 million overall, which is about $106 million in 2021. But over the course of the seven movie franchise, this one actually ranks third, obviously. Uh, but overall, the entire comedy franchise, it brought in $239 million in seven movies. So it's not too shabby. But this movie, this always struck me as bizarre. The original movie in the series was rated R. Now, that one, it came out March 23rd, 1984. And the PG rating didn't go into effect until July 1st, 1984. So that one makes sense. They were a little too racy for PG, so it was slapped with an R rating. Then the sequel came out in 85, and that was met with a PG-13 rating. And that, again, that makes sense. Then films three through seven, all rated PG. And to me, like a rating of PG, it's like a little kid's movie. Like I just, I clearly, this is not a little kid's movie. So were they motivated to make a couple extra bucks or something? I'm not really sure, but if they were, completely failed miserably because each movie dropped drastically in the box office totals after the second movie. So that's why I brought up this one was number three in the lineage of seven, but each one went down and down and down. I'll bring out those numbers if we need them later on, but I'd expect that in 2021, but you know, definitely not in the eighties. It seems like the eighties, they put everything over the top. So very puzzling. Uh, but if you're into like gritty crime action, dudes without eyebrows, wisecracking cops, the most incredible ass kisser you've ever seen, kung fu voice dubbing, law enforcement academies with zero standards, Mahoney, Hightower, Tackleberry, Callahan, Hooks, and a touching best friend story between Zed and Sweet Chuck, then Police Academy 3, Back to Training, is the movie for you. Fantastic. I'm a huge fan of 3 as well. I love it. And it's because of Bobcat. <laughs> I got to say, I thought you were going Nightmare on Elm Street when you were talked about having so many of them. And then you threw comedy in there. And uh, I did figure out it was the Police Academy series. I had it pegged. Um, let me ask you this. So part three, that is the one with Bobcat? I th- yeah, I he's was- in two and three. Two- okay, yeah. Citizen on Patrol, was that two? That's four. That's four. That's four. That's four, yeah. Wait, what's part two? He's a He's a bad guy in two. Okay. And then in three... He's like re, you know, revitalizing himself or whatever, uh, rehabbing his personality. So he goes to the police academy. And actually, there's a scene at the very beginning of the movie after the whole uh, crash with him and uh, Sweet Chuck, where they're in their dorm and he's screaming in Sweet Chuck's face. And then Callahan walks in. She's like, "What's going on?" And he's like, "This guy is an asshole." Whatever he says. And she's like, "No, it's fine. He's here to rehab himself." And the the entire movie with those two, it just makes. The entire movie, I think, totally. and for me at least. Totally. Nice. Well, uh, excellent choice. Uh, I think I was, if, if I had to choose, I remember loving the second one, the one where Bobcat was the bad guy, like in the gang yeah. and stuff. Yeah. But yep. I yep. mean, you got to love all those characters. Great, great series. So cool. So good. You, you know what's actually crazy about the entire series as a whole, too, which you don't see very often? They actually kept 21 cast members. For at least one movie in the, the yeah. franchise that they stayed before and after, hmm. which I think it's one of the only franchises to do that with an ensemble cast that big. Nice. It's pretty nuts. All right, gentlemen. My movies pick brought together some of the biggest up-and-coming stars of the 90s. Names like 
John Turturro, Halle Berry, Isaiah Washington, Ron Silver, Teresa Randall, Demi Mazar, Quentin Tarantino, Michael Imperioli, Naomi Campbell, Richard Belzer, Madonna, and it's the film debut of Gretchen Maul, and it had a soundtrack done by the one and only Prince. And to top it off, it's a Spike Lee joint. Released March 22nd, 1996, and opening on 1,077 screens, earning $2.4 million its very first weekend. I give you the story of a phone sex operator and the men who loved her in Spike Lee's Girl 6. Spike Lee's first feature in which, he, in which he did not contribute to the screenplay, he actually just directed this one. Roger Ebert wrote about this film. I am prepared to suspend a great deal of disbelief while watching a movie, but during Girl 6, I found it difficult to believe that a phone sex girl would get addicted to her job, to the money, sure, to the power of the men who call her, perhaps, but to the sex? Even though Spike Lee's Girl 6 was written by a woman, it seems conceived from the point of view of the male caller who would like to believe that, a, that the woman he's hiring by the minute is enjoying the conversation just as much as he is. Now, remember when I said that it made $2.4 million its opening weekend? Well, after that weekend, nobody went to see it because the gross was just under $5 million total for this movie, that cost $12 million to make. So I'm phoning it in on this one. It's Girl 6, March 22nd, 1996. I love how you brought up the $2.4 in the beginning. Like You made it like it was this gigantic total. They made $2.4 the first It is. Week. That's a huge opening weekend. But after the opening weekend, the reviews came out, and nobody went to go see it. Ten years prior, when Police Academy came out, they made 8.4 in their opening weekend. <laughs> oh. Just throwing that out there. <laughs> All right. Well, let's kick it down to our celebrity guest judge, Tom Higginson, for the ruling on the movies round. Um. Yeah. So Spike Lee joint, you know, you can always count on Spike. I feel like Girl 6 was maybe kind of start, you know, started when, when, when he, you know, his career started slowing down a little bit, maybe, you know, you think obviously he had some, some huge and very important movies in the uh, late eighties, early nineties. But um, yeah, that one, that one seemed to fall off a little bit. Um, and uh, I think, you know, Mike nailed it with, with the Ruddles going from after my Beatles heart, of course. Um, but I don't know this round, I think I got to go to man crush just because, you know, the police Academy movies, uh, a very soft, soft spot in my nostalgic heart. So I got to give this one the man crush. Nice. Very nice. Yeah. If you rewatch it, though, that PG rating does not like I don't understand how it got a PG rating in 1986. Yeah, doesn't make sense. Well, it's kind of like, you know, the Goonies. It's like the first some of the first words are like shit. And like, you know, there's so much like little <laughs> yeah. swearing in that. And that that's rated PG, obviously. So, yeah, the 80s were a, a different time for sure. All right, man, crush, you picked up a point and we're heading into our final one point round. What category are we going with next? Oh, man. All right. Uh, trying to keep the strategy up here. Let's go. Uh, let's go hot products. Let's do that one next. And this Tom, this is probably something, you know, a little bit about uh, maybe not the band. Well, you might know about the bands. I'm sure you did, but 
you'll know about what they went through here. So March 21st, 1986. And good Lord, this is the first time in Dueling Decades history I actually believed I wasn't going to find a hot product. Uh, obviously, the, the smaller the calendar window is, the fewer options we have. And typically, we all kind of know that if there's nothing major, there's a couple things that we could fall back on. Like no big product releases, no problem. Let's see what came out on VHS that week. So that was my thinking last night. I sent Mark a text message and uh, he was like, oh, did you look up VHS? And I, I came across an ad for the Goonies going on sale. Uh, however, sadly, it was coming on March 24th, oh. which is outside of my window. Uh-huh. Uh, so that was out. Dude, so I kept trucking along. You would have had me the instant vote if it was Goonies. So. Uh, dude, like <laughs> I saw that and I saw the ad. It was a full page ad for a VHS release for 80 bucks. Wow. And I was like, oh, this this is it right here. But uh, yeah, apparently outside my window. So I kept digging. I kept digging. And uh, last night I stumbled upon this tiny blurb in this newspaper called The Morning Call out of Allentown, Pennsylvania. And this is what it said. It said, the notorious Ozzy Osbourne and his heavy metal band are heading back to the Valley April 18th at the Stabler Arena. Opening band will be Metallica. Tickets go on sale today at the arena and other local ticket outlets. And this right here was the beginning leg of the Damage Inc. tour which started March 27th, 1986 and went on for nearly a year before finishing up February 13th, 1987. Uh, the, interestingly, the tour began with Ozzy headlining and Metallica as the opener for a few months before Metallica officially took over as the headliner that summer in support of the Master of Puppets album. Sadly, though, this is actually the tour where Cliff Burton was killed in a bus accident. Mm. It happened on uh, September 27th. It was a day after they completed a show in Stockholm, Sweden. And uh, obviously numerous dates were canceled and the band got back together mid-November to finish out the tour with new bassist Jason Newstead. And this was interesting, though, like prior to uh, to Cliff Burton dying, Kirk Hammett, uh, just a couple of years ago, he had an interview and uh, he said that Metallica was considering firing Lars Ulrich at the completion of this tour. And uh, Kirk, he doesn't really go into it much. But then if you look at Scott Ian's autobiography, I'm the man. He's got kind of like a whole chapter or part of a chapter about it. And he said, I didn't, and I quote, I didn't ask why they were going to kick Lars out. I figured it was because they wanted a better drummer, but apparently there was also business related stuff going on behind the scenes that they weren't thrilled with. Um, other than that, I mean, go and get your tickets to one of the hottest tours of the year. You got the Damage Inc. tour. Uh, but I do have another little clip from his book um, where uh, he's talking, he's talking back and forth to uh, Cliff Burton. I just thought this was interesting, so I'll throw it out there. So uh, this is from uh, his book, I'm the Man. Of course, I'm talking about Scott Ian, Fanthrax. Cliff explained the plan. The three of us have agreed, and I quote, when we get home from this tour, we're going to get rid of Lars, even if it means we can't use the Metallica name anymore. Somehow Lars owned the name at that point, or at least they thought he did. I looked at James and I said, this is crazy. You are Metallica. Everyone is going to know you, even if you change your name. And at this point, everyone already knows you. It doesn't matter what you call yourself. It's still going to be you guys and your music. I thought that was interesting. Uh, I never really, they never expunged on it, uh, but I never heard about that before. So that's kind of wild. Hmm. Jeez. Yeah. I didn't know that, that backstory. That's, that's crazy. Because Lars, you'd think, you know, you think Metallica, obviously you think of James and probably Lars would be second person you think of, yeah. you know? Huh. Crazy. All right, Mike Ranger, what did you bring for the hot products round? 
Well, it uh, looks like uh, Paul McCartney and Wings uh, released the first single off their album, London Town, called With a Little Luck, on March 20th, 1978, reaching number one in the United States and number five in the UK. Described by Billboard magazine as an optimistic and celebratory... Well, that's a word that I'm not going to be able to pronounce, so we're going to move on. Uh, the the pop song is regarded as one of the best songs of Paul McCartney's post-Beatles career and was featured in the closing credits of the 1979 film Sunburn, starring Farrah Fawcett. Uh, the B-side of the 45 has the tracks Backwards Traveler and Cufflink. So that's exciting. And with a little luck, people forget that I fucked up. <laughs> nice, nice. Uh, I'm pulling my pulling my Beatles heart again. I like it. <laughs> Mike learned the pandering. Yeah. He's like, All yeah, right, he's God. googling. I'm pretty sure he, he was During working on another story. Yeah. He was, <laughs> you know, quickly searching for more Beatles related uh, picks. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. So for my hot product, let's go to the uh, the Times News in Twin Falls, Idaho, March 22nd, 1996. Now we're gonna go over to the bestseller section. By the Associated Press, these were the top-selling books this week. According to the USA Today, the number one book for that week was a paperback, and it's the 42nd book in a series of books that was just absolutely inescapable growing up in the 90s. And for a while, it was the best-selling series of all time, selling 4 million books a month. So let's open up the pages of Goosebumps. I give you the best-selling Egg Monsters from Mars by R.L. Stein. Now, R.L. Stein himself said that this was one of his favorite books to write, as it only takes place in two scenes. So, this book is so 90s that it actually references American Girl dolls, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and who can forget the great game Battle Chess. So, the description for the book reads, An Egg Hunt. That's what Dana Johnson's bratty sister Brandy wants to have at her birthday party. And whatever Brandy wants, Brandy gets. Dana's not big on egg hunts, but that was before he found the egg. It's not like a normal egg. It's about the size of a softball, and it's covered in ugly blue-purple veins. And it's starting to hatch. (laughs) 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 Oh, we're all 12. So without spoiling the shocking ending, once Dana takes the egg to a mad scientist who tells them that there are more of these eggs, they came from Mars, and when they hatch, a blob-like substance comes out of the egg. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, artist Tim Jacobus, who did the covers for the Goosebumps series, actually considers this to be one of his favorite covers because he thinks it's kind of cool and scary to work with something ordinary, like a carton of eggs. You know, it's not really what you'd think of a monster or something that's a scary imagery so he was able to play with those things so ormagird it's gersperms egg monsters (laughs) from mars it's the best-selling book of the week march 22nd 1996 very nice very nice um cool so i um man this is a you guys all kind of all kind of nailed it in this round um i will say you know, Mike going for my McCartney heart, although I don't, I'm not sure that I know or am super familiar with that wing song. Um, so you probably should have just went with your original thing that you had ready instead of Googling <laughs> Beatles uh, 
I actually did not story. change my my pick. <laughs> I know. I'm just I'm just teasing you. Um, but yeah, so um, I think that one is out. Now this is tough. You got the freaking Ozzy Metallica tour ticket. Um, but then of course you got classic Goosebumps, you know, series. Um, having a kid right now who is 11 years old, he's all about the Goosebumps and all about you know. I'm trying to encourage him to read and to, you know, get into things like that. Ah, so I don't know, you know. He could read Scott Ian's book if you want. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Find out all the all the all the drama. Um, you know, I think that the the ticket is probably slightly cooler, but as far as hot products, I mean, a ticket to one show or a best-selling book that sold 4 million copies. Would you say a freaking a month? Yeah. A month, 4 million books a month. That's unbelievable. And uh, so I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to have to throw this one, uh, you know, for, for my son, my 11 year old son, I'm going to, I'm going to go with Mark's pick on this round with the goosebumps book. All right. So the game's all tied up now heading into our two point rounds. I have control of the board. Uh, you know, for our next category, let's go over to the news round, gentlemen. Now, I found my news in the Los Angeles Times, March 22nd, 1996, where staff writer Chuck Phillips writes, Rapper Dr. Dre to part ways with Death Row, start new label. In a move that will reorder the architecture of the rap music business, rap star Dr. Dre, the producer of the booming hip-hop music market, is splitting with Death Row Records the controversial record label he co-founded four years ago with partner Suge Knight. Dre, whose real name is Andre Young, will launch a new label, yet unnamed, that will be founded in part and distributed by Westwood-based Interscope Records. According to sources, Dre, who's 30 years old, will be chief executive and produce records exclusively for the new label. Death Row also is based in Westwood and has sold more than 18 million albums and has dominated the nation's pop charts over the last three years. With gangster rap music from stars such as Dr. Dre himself, Snoop Doggy Dog, The Dog Pound, and Tupac Shakur. You know, the company has attracted national attention in the last year after violent and sexually explicit lyrics set off a political uproar, causing Time Warner to dump the label's distributor, Interscope. So this company, of course, would go on to be known as Aftermath and see 20 of its 28 releases go platinum. As well as his own albums, Aftermath was produced by Dr. Dre. And uh, for good or bad, he gave us the artists Eminem, 50 Cent, The Game, and Kendrick Lamar. So March 22nd, 1996, Dr. Dre is straight out of death row. <laughs> Wow, that's pretty good. That's that's a good news bit right there. I love that. Um, I feel like you threw you picked that one because you knew uh, the music connection with me. No, no, nothing to no, do with it. Had nothing to do with it. <laughs> it was literally <laughs> the best news story I could find. I mean, that's pretty dope. You know, I am a, a huge Eminem fan, so I knew right where you were going with that. So very cool. All right, man, crush. What did you bring for the news round? All right, well, Tom, I brought this one just for you, since you want you want to, this one's just for you. All right, so let's go. Uh, March seventeenth, nineteen eighty six, and there was a lot of 
boring political crap going on. And let's be honest, like I think we touched on a year's worth of politics last episode. We brought up the whole Howard Stern story. So I, I kept flipping the pages and I came across this article out of the Philadelphia Inquirer that read more like a story from the National Enquirer. And I definitely had to dive into this one. Uh, be aware, this actually happened. This was this was not a tabloid bullshit story. This was legit. Like this actually happened. So the title of this article reads, Women says cat scan die killed psychic powers. So this lady, her name is Judith Richardson Hames. Uh, we're going to call her bullshitter for short. Uh, so she went on the stand and she claimed that she offered psychic counseling. And I quote, because this is the most random group of people ever to mailmen, grocers, doctors, lawyers, and Indian chiefs. But she concluded by saying, I can't, <laughs> I can't think of any walk of life that I didn't counsel. She also testified that her best skill was the ability to read auras <laughs> that surround people. Supposedly she helped find police bot or she helped police find bodies. She, she held seances and on more than one occasion, the famous English poet, John Milton had spoken through the bullshitters voice. Oh yeah. And bullshitter was, uh, in the prediction business as well. Although, uh, many of her predictions did not pan out. Uh, all this occurred between the years of 1969 and 1976. Then in October of 1976, Bullshitter was scheduled to have an MRI at Temple University Hospital, and that changed her life forever. Uh, it's funny how she couldn't predict that this was going to happen, though. So prior to the CAT scan, she was injected with a dye that apparently caused her to have issues. Uh, from that moment on, after getting the dye, she vomited for two days, suffered bad headaches for three weeks, welts broke out all over her body, and she lost the ability to read auras. Uh, if she attempted to use her psychic abilities, she would immediately fall ill, uh, rending her special gift useless. Uh, so she waits 10 years and files this lawsuit about losing her magic. Uh, she brings no concrete evidence of anything. And the, the hospital denies everything. They're like, I, we don't know what this woman is talking about. Uh, we don't have any of this documented. And then uh, the initial article that I found this in, kind of treats like this story is like a gag. And they conclude the article by saying this trial is expected to last for a week. So I took a chance and I went to the <laughs> next week and I found the results of the trial. Bullshitter wins a $1 million settlement. Whoa. Uh, yeah. And before, before the jury deliberated, the judge specifically told them, and I quote, disregard bullshitter statement about losing her magical powers and only consider her negative allergic reaction. Clearly, they did not listen. And I'll wrap this one up right here. Fast forward to August of 1986. I dug forward in a couple months. Common Pleas Judge Leon Katz, who is the guy that I just gave you that other quote from, he overturned the $1 million award and stated, it's so grossly excessive as to shock the court's sense of justice. And he took five months to rule because a jury's verdict shouldn't be overturned unless it results from clear error. And this does. So this lady who is a psychic loses her powers due to the cat scan die gets a million bucks and then everything gets pulled back. Wow. And I was just like, I have, I have to bring this story to the table. 
This is ridiculous. <laughs> That's pretty good. What was the headline again? That was the best part. The head the headline of this story is woman says cat scan die killed psychic powers. <laughs> and this is in a real newspaper. This is not it's not the National Enquirer. Insane. Very nice. Very nice. All right, Mike Ranger, what did you bring for the news round? Uh, well, gentlemen, I bring to you today uh, a sad tale. Uh, I found an article in the uh, Daily News on Thursday, March 23rd, 1978, titled Greatest Walenda Falls to Death. The article says Carl Walenda, 73, the patriarch of the greatest high-wire family in circus history, was caught in a gust of wind while walking across a cable strung between two tall buildings yesterday and plunged 120 feet to his death. Walenda was the founder and leader of the Great Walendas. Crowds gasped, women fainted, and someone screamed. Walenda lost his balance, made a grab for the wire, and fell through the air, landing on the roof of a taxi, breaking his fall. The witnesses on the scene say the taxi did have his light on, but that the meter was running. <laughs> <laughs> and that happened in 1978. 1978. If, uh, San Juan. If or didn't lose her powers, she probably could have warned him that that was going to happen. Yeah, the, the disturbing part of this is that uh, the, uh, the the news outlets that covered this actually, you know, show the fall. Oh, so it's kind of it, man. It, it's something to watch. You can go on YouTube and you can and you can watch this whole thing happen. I was actually calling my parents up. I'm like, you remember this? Wow. <laughs> yeah, it's so depressing to watch stuff like that. You know, yeah. if I have to watch something like that, especially if it's like for the show or something, you know, I just mess with it and I download it and then I watch it in reverse. And it's kind of uplifting to see somebody fly up to the top of a building. All the <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That probably would have been the better way to go. And instead, I was like, you know, it was really it was actually kind of upsetting because it was one of those really cool taxis, like those old ones, like, you know, in the cartoons with the checkers on the side, the bubbly. ones. Yeah. yeah. You know, and now totally ruined, you know. Yeah, that's the worst part for sure. The car did yeah. you just smush out like in Roger Rabbit. Yeah, I was gonna no, say. <laughs> no, no, didn't 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 make its way to Toontown. Uh, but um, other the, the other sad part of this is uh, that his seventeen uh, year old uh, granddaughter was uh, in the uh, crowd. Oh wow. man! Did you yeah. guys ever see that movie uh, Man on Wire by any chance? I didn't. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, it was like a documentary made from some French, uh, you know, high wire guy who it was. He had him and his friends had this big like uh you know uh plan they kind of schemed it out to put a line between the two twin towers and he was up there i think for a matter of a couple hours just doing this and you know people of course witnessing it and everything and there was police officers on each side of the building or you know each on each rooftop just waiting for him and he just stayed out on the line for hours and then finally got off and, you know, got arrested and everything. Um, but man, that was a, uh, it was, it was thrilling to watch that just because, I mean, you, you know, you know, he's going to make it okay, obviously, but what kind of, I mean, just, I, I don't understand, you know, I, I'm not a big thrill seeker guy to begin with. So to just do something like that is just wild to me. And obviously sometimes as, you know, Mike just told us, Sometimes it doesn't go according to plan. And uh, 
yeah, that's the fear is just imagine witnessing that. So I don't, I don't want to go Google that and look at that, but just watch it in reverse, man. Just watch it. In yeah. reverse. <laughs> you know, what? what's even more crazy is that this is not really like the, the first tragedy to hit that family. There's been other members that have died or yeah. been paralyzed for life or something else. So, yeah. And that's not even the first time that's, well, that particular story is that's the first time, but it's not the first time that somebody's fell. We had somebody uh, not too long ago, we were talking about uh, walking across Niagara yeah, Falls right. or going off in like, uh, what the hell was the guy in? Like uh, like a barrel or some shit and got crushed mm. and died. Mm. Yeah. Always a good, good time. <laughs> All right, Tom, <laughs> let's hear your verdict for the news round. Uh, well, again, really great really great everybody's psychic woman i mean that's just a crazy like like you said it's almost too too crazy to believe it you know like but totally real uh i love the fact the judge overturned the decision months later i didn't think that was even possible um and obviously the uh the high wire accident crazy horrific that's gonna give me nightmares tonight i think um but i mean you know, this is a millennium of aftermath. There ain't going to be nothing after that. So Ooh. I'm going to have to go with Mark on this one with the uh, the Dr. Dre story. All right. And with those two points, I jump out to a three to one lead heading into the final round, the television round. So for my television pick, we'll appropriately go over to the pages of the Boston Globe for an article by Renee Graham. NBC must think a great deal of Boston Common, a new comedy series premiering tonight on Channel 7. For the next six weeks, the television network has loaned the show its lofty 8.30 p.m. time slot, normally occupied by its highly rated freshman series, The Single Guy. Clearly, executives at the Peacock Network believe that TV viewers are such slabs of cheese they won't even bother flipping the channel from anything sandwiched between Friends and Seinfeld. NBC could put a sitcom on starring Pat Buchanan and the Village People in that time slot and have a runaway hit. So when Boston Common gets huge numbers in its debut, remember, it's only the time slot, not the series itself. Now, the show itself, it stars stand-up comedian Anthony Clark as Boyd Pritchett, who drives his kid sister from Virginia to Boston to study communications at fictional Randolph Harrington College. His sister can't wait for Boyd to jump back in his car and hightail it below the Mason-Dixon line. When she moves back into her new digs in the Commonwealth, she coos, I'm going to have a lot of sex in this apartment. Her brother doesn't really want to leave his sister alone, so he kind of sticks around for a little while, and he warms up to a local Boston school teacher. So that's the plot of this one. If that doesn't sound like a recipe for success, two days later in the Boston Globe, we get an update. Anthony Clark, stand-up comedian and star of the new show, Boston Common, called his old pals down at the Boston Comedy Connection to say that he got word from NBC president Warren Littlefield that the network had ordered four more episodes of Boston Common. That makes this the program's six-episode tryout a 10-show run. It then got renewed again for a full second season. Now, unfortunately, that would be the last of Boston Common, as they only delivered 32 episodes in total. The show itself was set at a fictional college, which was based on Emerson College, which is actually the college that star 
of the show, Anthony Clark and creator Max Muttchuck actually attended. So I give you Boston Commons, March 21st, 1996. I totally don't Very nice. That. Very nice. All right, Man Crush, what do you have for the television round? Oh, man. I got something better than Boston Commons. So let's go uh, <laughs> March 20. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's a- <laughs> Might as well just let everybody know. So let's go uh, March 22nd, 1986. So unlike Mark, I'm not going to pick a midseason replacement uh, this week. Two weeks in a row uh, was definitely enough for me. Uh, not that there weren't any. Uh, there was, but there was no way that I was going to pick another show that only lasted nine episodes. So I kept digging through the TV listings for my week. And obviously, just a small plug here. If you haven't liked our Facebook page yet, go over to www.facebook.com forward slash Dueling Decades and join the other 75,000 people who have already made it over there. And uh, we're continually going through newspapers for the show or for our content for the page. So what we do nightly is we put up these TV listings to show you what was on television like for a particular night in the 80s and 90s. Mark, what year did you use tonight? Uh, 1998. 1998. So you can go there. You can see the top six choices, at least our top six choices for that year and see what was on TV. It's it's fun to do, uh, but we do that just about every night. So make sure you go over to that page. Check it out. Uh, anyway, I'm so I'm digging through and I find an ad for something that was premiering on HBO that Saturday night. And this was huge, like right around this time in the 80s, like boxing. They started to take some hits. A few years prior, arguably the most popular boxer at the time, Sugar Ray Leonard, he suffered a career-ending eye injury. Obviously, he would come back several times, but at this point, he was retired. Then you had the sad imagery of potentially a brain damage, Muhammad Ali leaving a hospital, which is huge news in 1986. Then a few days prior to this event, uh, you had boxer Steve Watt, who died after getting knocked out by Rocky Kelly. Like He died like three days later, but he never woke up after getting knocked out. So needless to say, like the public was either all in on boxing or they wanted it banned at this point in 1986. However, you had amazing young talent that was coming up right here. And this event, it pretty much turned everything positive. So one of the other plan or one of the pains in the asses here was when it comes to boxing, you have all these federations and they never agree on anything. So you had like 47 different champs WBC, WBA, IBF, etc. So HBO spent months negotiating with the big three to organize an event that would unify all the belts and name one single champion. And at this point, it had been eight years since there was a unified champ. And that last one, that was Leon Spinks. He defeated Muhammad Ali in 1978. So this was a long time in the making. So after $20 million and months of negotiating, HBO heavyweight unification series was announced and a legend was born at 7 p.m. March 22nd, 1986. The first fight in the unification series kicked off. It was an upset. You had undefeated WBC champion Pinklin Thomas uh, at the hands of Trevor Burbick. Uh, But you fast forward six months later, Mike Tyson has his first match in the tournament. First newly crowned WBC champ, Trevor Burbick. And as we all know, Tyson knocked out Burbick. I think it was like two rounds. He takes a WBC strap. Six months after that, Tyson beats Bonecrusher Smith for the WBA championship. And in the finals of the tournament, he would go on to defeat Tony Tucker to become the first unified champion in eight years and 
a boxing legend. All because of the HBO Unification series. March 22nd, 1986. Fantastic. Wow. Not bad. Not bad. Who doesn't love Iron Mike, you know? Yeah. All right, Mike Ranger. What do you have for the television round? Mike's looking. He's looking for Beatles news right now. <laughs> Speaking of Iron Mike. <laughs> well, Mark, on uh, Sunday, March 19th, 1978, on CBS, America said goodbye to Gloria and Mike Stivick in the 24th episode of season eight of the iconic show, All in the Family. The episode is titled The Stivics Go West. The episode is a heartfelt goodbye, proving to be just as traumatic for Archie and Edith as it is for Meathead and Archie's little girl. I found an article in the Ashbury Park Press titled Just Like Old Times for One More All in the Family. The article goes on to say that it's a breakup of an American institution that took television by storm seven years ago. Mike and Gloria are leaving Queens for Santa Barbara, California. Both Reiner and Struthers are leaving for shows of their own. Producer Norman Lear will also be taking an extended leave after producing 16 series and 700 hours worth of shows. All in the Family ran for nine seasons, 205 episodes, gave birth to spinoffs that in turn gave birth to their own spinoffs. Rob Reiner and Sally Struthers appeared in 183 episodes and did reprise their roles in season nine as well as in Archie Bunker's place. And of course, Gloria got her, her own show that lasted a whole season. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Has anybody ever seen Gloria? The sp- no. The, sp- the spinoff? I have not. I've avoided it. Well, uh, let me tell you, for those that don't know, uh, Gloria and Mike do end up getting a divorce, and uh, she moves back to New York, and then they ship her. She goes up to Dutchess County to work for a vet office that is owned by Burgess Meredith. Wow. Yes. All the good shows go to Dutchess County. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It makes sense, because Archie would sometimes reference Dutchess County in the show. Yeah. So it kind of... You know, be up there in uh, Dutchess County up there with beautiful weather. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Tom, let's hear your verdict for the television round. Um. Okay, so uh, I I got to say, I, I'm not familiar with Boston Calling. Is it Boston Calling? Boston Common. Boston Common. Common mistake. Um, although I, I <laughs> uh, you know. <laughs> I like the uh, the idea, you know, the sister that wants to have sex a lot in the apartment. You know, that sounds like a real nice family, you know, coming together kind of a thing there, with the brother. <laughs> um, but yeah, that one I didn't really know. And I would go, then we go to Man Crush. And I mean, Mike Tyson, you know, a staple of, I think, all of our childhoods, probably watching all those fights, HBO and everything. My only issue was that, in your selected week, I know you tied it in with Mike Tyson, but Tyson didn't fight that week of your, you know, it was the HBO unification thing, which I know you kind of, you kind of brought it in with, with Tyson, but without that Tyson, you know, without that reach. But without the unification week, you have no Tyson. <laughs> That's true. That is it's a, true. It's a catch 22. It really is. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to have to go. I mean, all in the family. Um, I spent, you know, a lot of hours as a kid watching, watching reruns of that show. Um, and, you know, thinking about the, the, the finale and everybody kind of splitting apart, you know, I, I gotta admit made me a little sad, you know, thinking about all those characters and everything. Um, so yeah, I'm going to have to give this one to, to Mike cause all in the family as my shit. 
All right, Mike, you pick up two points in that round, and that actually gives you three points, which ties you with me. So we're going to go to a final wild card round. I feel like I need like the remote control chair to flip me back. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right, Mike Ranger, what did you bring for the wild card round? Well, this is uh, this is going to be interesting because uh, what I'm going to bring is what was actually going to be my movie pick. Uh, but there was a lot to unpack and I just didn't feel like, you know, writing all that down. Uh, so, <laughs> and also I liked when I pick movies, I like to go with like American releases yeah. um, or at least North American releases. Uh, so this is actually a movie that came out on uh, March 23rd in Hong Kong. And it's actually, it's called game of death. It's ba- it's basically Bruce Lee's last movie. Right, yeah. But they take kind of pieces, you know, and, and and mix them together and, like, do all this kind of crazy voiceover work. And then it does get released in America in 79. And then it comes out again a few years later where they do, like, another cut of it. So And then I think they change the name again. So, yeah, that's, uh, that's what you get, uh, a pick that I didn't want to use. hey nice all right so for my wild card pick this is actually a news story that i was going to use for my news until i found the story about aftermath and uh i'm so ecstatic we get to talk about this one so we'll go over to the times tribune in scranton pennsylvania march 22nd 1996 for an article where the headline reads topless wrestler thwarted by video Greensburg, Pennsylvania. A woman healthy enough to wrestle topless in coleslaw was not injured seriously enough to sue the state, a jury ruled. It took the jury only about two hours Thursday to decide that Sarah Milliken, 48, a grandmother and aspiring mud wrestler, did not have a valid case when she sued the transportation department for injuries suffered on an icy road. The department only offered one piece of evidence in its defense, a videotape of Milliken grappling with another woman in a pit of coleslaw. Her estranged husband, Kenneth Krasinski, taped her in Daytona Beach, Florida in March of 1992, one year after Milliken's car flipped over on an icy road in suburban Pittsburgh. So I think this pairs up fantastic with your story, man crush. It does. I kind of <laughs> wish you brought that to the table. So that's my offering for the wild card round. Tom, let's hear your final verdict on this game. Well, you know, when you went a topless wrestler, <laughs> I mean, I couldn't help thinking of like, you know, eighties wrestle wrestle. I know you're in nineties, but like, I was thinking of, of a guys, you know, like men topless wrestlers so when you threw the twist of the the topless woman wrestler uh in coleslaw by the way that's an interesting <laughs> you know interesting detail it definitely you know only in florida <laughs> right but then you you know we get to the 48 year old grandma detail which throws <laughs> a whole new twist to it um so I will I will have to say that uh you know the the Bruce Lee movie sounds awesomely awesomely weird because they probably had to hodgepodge it together um but I will I'm going to go with you Mark that's just right. crazy yeah Mark, Coleslaw Mark, wrestling wins for sure what, what was her finishing move with those flapjacks <laughs> oh I don't want to know <laughs> it's like a spin around 
Oh man. Tom, I think I well thanks for uh for only choosing one of my rounds by the way, but uh I think we <laughs> we need to talk about like why you're here. I mean, we we need to talk about it and aside from like uh like friends of the show uh usually like we have rapper wax on most of our guests are like notable figures from the 80s and 90s but now you're basically the same age as us so you, you catch all the same like nostalgia nostalgia feels as us so it makes sense but you also have this new solo thing going on with million miler which spotify calls dripping with nostalgia so i think it fits right in with what we do so now it all kind of makes sense to the people at home but tell us about millie yeah, I'm basically I'm in my mind. I've got my own dueling decades going on because I'm still going, you know, going strong with plain white tees 20 years into the tees stuff. Um, but yeah, I, I started this side project. I think it was kind of, uh, you know, pushed forward a, a lot with this last year. You know, everybody's sure. just stuck at home, uh, kind of nothing to do. It sparked my creativity to finish an album. Uh, and so, yeah, I have this project called Million Miler and I call myself Millie as a little nickname. Um, but yeah, it's basically just my love for like we've talked about all episode, the Goonies, you know, and all these 80s, you know, not only all the movies back to the future, the Lost Boys, you know, Ghostbusters, all that stuff. Uh, but of course, also the music from back then. I mean, I grew up as we all did, I'm sure, with Michael Jackson and Bruce Springsteen and Madonna and all those that that 80s, uh, just such a sweet spot for music. Um, so, yeah, so I just my heart was kind of pulling me in that in that direction. Um, so I just made a record of songs that kind of have that that nostalgic vibe, but are still, you know, personal and kind of uh, about me and my life as it is now, but just literally dipped into that, uh, into that eighties sound and that eighties aesthetic. So yeah, yeah definitely sure. doing, doing decades in my mind, but, but it's, uh, I don't know. It's like this, this year kind of showed us like, man, just kind of do whatever feels right. Right. There's kind of no rules. It's like, everything's kind of, everybody kind of hit the, the pause and reset button. So it's just kind of, do what makes you happy and uh, and have fun, right? For sure. That's why we both have mustaches. Exactly. <laughs> but you have a and you have a mullet too, which is pretty damn sweet for the people who can't see it. Just check it out. Uh, it's Higgy Pop on Instagram, right? Yep, at Higgy Pop. And yeah, I will say, I think the '80s are winning in that duel right now for me. You know, <laughs> kind of leaning more '80s than than 2020s right now. But definitely, like, when you listen to it, you have that 80s synth pop feel to the new music. But I can't put my exact finger on, like, who it sounds like. But I can totally hear, like, Zuma Beach as a song that they would use for, like, Cobra Kai. Oh, you know, yeah. Or, because it almost it reminds me of, like, a scene in Karate Kid where they use Cruel Summer, where they're coming out of, I forgot what it's called, like, like the Sportatorium or right. whatever that place was called that they were coming out of. Like, what, did, what yeah. bands kind of inspired you most to make Million Miler? Did you, were you listening to one thing or another? Not really. Uh, it's, that's, that's cool that you, that you, you know, it, and that, that was my goal, by the way, was to definitely instantly transport you back to the eighties, but not with like an, Oh, that sounds just like Michael Jackson, or that right. sounds just like, aha, take on me or something. You know, the idea was to, um, yeah, I mean, I love all of that stuff. You know, there's, there's actually this, this, a bar in, in LA, uh, called Break Room 86 that is that I stumbled upon one night a few years ago. 
that is literally a 1980s speakeasy. That's like the theme of the bar. You kind of stumble in through like a, a secret passage vending machine. It's so crazy. And it, it, it feels like you walk into like a John Hughes movie, like it, it, they're blasting 80s hits and everybody's just dancing. It's like the funnest night of your life every time you go there. And so that definitely fueled my, my kind of passion to want to make a project of like current, like new, new 80s music. Um, so to be, to answer your question, there wasn't really any artist in particular. It was just getting inundated with all these classic 80s songs that just made me, made me feel so good. And just all the memories of just being a kid and, and, and you know, hearing these songs on the radio, seeing the videos on MTV. Uh, it just brought it all back to me like crazy. And so, yeah, I just I had to 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 write some songs in that vein and, and put it out. What were you listening to in the 80s? Like, what was your thing? So, well, my mom was huge on like the 80s pop stuff. Right. So you got a lot of Pat Benatar, a lot of Madonna, a lot of Michael Jackson, um, more of the stuff that was on the radio. Right. And then my dad was like. And this is going to, you guys are going to totally be like, so where the hell did plain white tees come out of all this? But my dad in the eighties was listening to like, like scorpions and Halloween and Manowar, like some weird obscure, like metal, like pop metal stuff. Um, so somehow though, but dude, some of that, that pop metal is so pop. It's so good. You know, oh, like yeah. for God's scorpions, sake, scorpions are fantastic. Are I saw them, I saw them like four years ago and they were still amazing. Damn. Yeah. I've never seen them live, but, and then of course you got to throw in, you know, I bought, you know, then I'm coming, coming to my own and, and buying, like, I remember I had like appetite for destruction, guns and roses, Sure. Yep. you know, and I loved at that time. I remember being a kid, this is not eighties at all, but like the monkeys were on TV. Oh, yeah. Yep. And so yep. I was like, Oh, I love these guys. And these songs are so good. So yeah, just a, a big, you know, mishmash of all that stuff, I think is kind of finding its way into, into a million miler. Well, I, I think that kind of makes sense then because like, I love punk music. I grew up on the nineties, like straight through everything, listening to punk. And you also dabble with that. Cause you have your band TLB. And so you got, pop you got punk you got synth I mean, what don't you do man like what, what's your favorite yeah. to perform you know uh it, it's interesting because i've always had you know obviously like i said plain white tees has been going for 20 years 20 plus years now and so the plain white tees i don't know if you guys know this but when we started our first couple albums we were kind of more of a pop punk band you know we would do warp tour and tour with bands like you know simple plan and uh motion city soundtrack and just these more kind of emo pop punk bands and um it wasn't until you know obviously we all, we would always do these acoustic songs on every record that was just i don't know something that kind of came natural to me and obviously those are the songs that kind of struck a chord with the audiences you know either right. delilah one two three four songs like that um but plain white tees it's like we, we didn't know once we had these hits, it was kind of like, well, we still kind of want to play this like pop punk music, but we know we got to do more of these acoustic songs. So it, it kind of became this thing where not that it has to be pigeonholed, but, you know, it just kind of like, you know, we, we kind of, um, I don't know, navigated more towards 
what worked for us and I guess what connected with 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 fans more. So there right. was these other facets of me that was like, man, like I just want to freaking play some three chord punk rock again, but we can't really go there with Plain White Tees. Uh, so yeah, so I uh, I formed a band called TLB with a couple buddies from high school because uh, one of my buddies went through a really crappy breakup. His girlfriend was also in his band and they were like starting to sell out shows and stuff. And then she left him for the band's manager. So it was like oh, a disaster. Man. Yeah. So our whole group of friends just kind of had this weird, like, oh my God, shake up. And so we just decided to write a bunch of breakup songs, kind of like an F you to her. And so we started doing that as TLB. It was almost like a therapeutic thing for him. And for me too, because it's like, cool, Plain White Tees are like doing this thing. But like, this gives me a chance to like, just kind of have fun and play some punk songs again. Um, so yeah, that's where TLB came from. And then again, I kind of told you guys the story of Million Miler. It was like, man, this 80s, this synth vibe was just oozing out of me. And like every angle, I, I would just be obsessed with it over the past like four or five years. And um, again, Plain White Tees, we kind of dabbled in a, with a little bit of that stuff on our latest album, Parallel Universe. But obviously we can't go full synth pop. You know, that's that's not right. on brand for sure. us. So that's how Million Miler was born. So yeah, just kind of, I don't know, having fun. It's like, as I'm getting to like, I don't know, dare I say, you know, middle age, we're all, you know, right about the same age you said. It's like, I don't know, I'm finding when when most people kind of, burn out with all that creative stuff i'm just kind of like igniting and, and finding my way into just being inspired by a lot of different things so so i'm just super happy that i get to make all this music and then you know just get to uh get to play it and there's actually people out there that want to listen it's just so cool so yeah I'm, I'm having fun with it yeah dude that's so awesome and I, like you know what i think you're our first mark correct me if i'm wrong but i think you're our first Grammy nominated judge. Ah, nice. Ever. I believe so. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Do nice. you kind of, do you recall when you heard about being nominated for song of the year? For sure. Yeah. I was driving, you know, it was like the Grammys, um, you know, at, that year was so huge for us with Hey There Delilah on the radio all the time and everything. And the song hitting number one in like 13 different countries. It was, it was like a, you know, a mind blowing year, of course. Um, so when Grammy nominations, it was like, oh, Grammy nominations are coming this week. It's like, you kind of like, well, shit, I hope, you know, we could get freaking nominated. Like, this is so cool. So kind of preparing myself to either get super excited or super disappointed, you know? Right. Um, and yeah, so I got the call from our publicist at the label saying, yeah, Peter Delilah is nominated for two Grammys. And so congratulations. Right. So, uh, it was, it was amazing, but the best part of it, I don't know if you guys know this story, but I actually called the real Delilah, who I never dated. It was, I, I met her, I was super, um, you know, just really kind of crushing on her, but she had a boyfriend. She went to school in New York and she had a boyfriend. So I was like, okay, I'm just gonna like, you know, I've gotta like write, write this girl. She actually begged me to write a song, by the way. I kind of joked with her that I had a song and then she kept asking me, where's my song? Where's my song? Blah, blah, blah. Long story short, I wrote this song knowing full well, you know, she had a boyfriend and nothing was probably gonna ever happen. Um, but anyway, we kept in touch as the song blew up and became this big hit. And um, when it got nominated for two Grammys, I actually called her 
and said, Hey, Hey there, Delilah. Yeah. Hey, Hey there. Hey there. Delilah. <laughs> um, no, I asked her to the Grammys and she said, well, believe it or not, me and you know, whatever his name was just broke up. So oh. hell yeah. I'll go to the Grammys with you. How so could they not thing. at that point? I well, mean, I mean, I how could know. you compete? I mean, yeah, come on. <laughs> you would think you would Thir- think, you but... were number one in 13 countries and he was not. That's he was. Tough. Yeah. He was number, I don't know. I don't know what the hell he was. Yeah, but he sold vinyl siding. So he's got that going for him. Yeah, right? Yeah, he was big in the uh, in the, the housing market. But no, he. Uh, the point is, though, so it was like this moment. And I'd written the song like four years previous to this, you know? So it was like this weird moment of like, holy shit, is this like weirdly like going to come full circle? And now I'm like me and Delilah are going to become a thing. Uh, but by the time the Grammys came, uh, you know, a month or two later, she was back with her boyfriend. I was Aww. actually back with my girlfriend who I was dating earlier that year. And uh, so we decided to just go anyway and just have fun with it. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's Dude, the Grammy that's story. Wild. And hold on to tie it in with, with Mike over here, uh, met Ringo Starr at the Grammys, which was pretty cool. So I had a little bit of Beatles connection there. Um, I met Ringo and it was after I was right up, he was sitting right across the aisle from me. And, you know, we're waiting song of the year is one of the last awards. So I'm getting so nervous, like, oh my God, you know, come on, come on. And so song of the year, it ended up going to, to Rehab by Amy Winehouse, which, okay, great song. She's a legend, all good. But a little bit, of course, disappointment, you know, like, oh, man, I lost. And so at that moment, I decided this was going to be the time I go say hi to Ringo, you know. And so it was like a commercial break or something right after uh, the award. And so I go over to him and I say, hey, you know, Ringo, just wanted to say hi. My name's Tom. I just lost that last award, (laughs) you know. And he's like, oh, well, smile, man. You're here. And it was like, you know, the perfect, you know, what else would you expect from Ringo Starr? You know, the perfect advice, uh, just like the Beatles, you know, they, they said so much by saying so little, you know, it was just the perfect, perfect little Beatles send off there. Um, so that ended up being my, my highlight of my Grammys, you know, getting that life advice from Ringo Starr. That's fucking awesome, man. But that's so, that so sounds like something that he would say. Yeah, right. Totally. That's just, yeah, that's great. I kind (laughs) of remember the whole thing going down. Now that you described everything, weren't you guys like on the red carpet and somebody was like giving her shit about like, how can you not be with this guy? Did that actually (laughs) happen? Because I kind of remember it. She definitely did the red carpet with us. And all I really remember, because obviously that whole whole experience is a total blur, right? But I just remember her saying like, the word neat a lot like people oh so what's it like you know being out here with these guys and she'd say like oh it's really neat and like it was kind of that moment because remember i didn't really know her that well it was just like i met her i was kind of crushing on her i wrote the song because she went to school in new york and that was kind of you know the that's kind of all i knew about this girl and it was actually on that red carpet and all these interviews that I was like, yeah, like me and Delilah probably wouldn't have worked out too well anyway, you know? <laughs> um, but 
yeah, everything was was neat. So yeah, I don't remember that question <laughs> specifically, but it probably yeah, people were probably like, so what's the deal? Why aren't you with this guy? And she's like, I don't know. I'm like, uh, everything's neat. I don't know. God, what what year? That was 2009. Because um, what year were you on iCarly? Yeah, so that was um, I think the song was huge on the radio in 2007. So I believe it would have been 2008 with the Grammys. Um, and yeah, I Carly, that was the, uh, you know, the, the most I get, the, the, the question I get most is, is Delilah a real person? And then number two is what was it like being on I Carly? <laughs> oh, the only reason I knew it is because I have a 14 year old. So she, grew oh, there up you go. Yeah. Watching and now, it. You know, it just Love that came episode. on Netflix recently. So now yeah. there's this resurgence of I Carly. I'm getting all these Instagram followers. I'm like, what the hell's going on? And it's like, oh yeah, I Carly. <laughs> Um, but yeah, that was, it was cool. We, we actually filmed that before it ever aired. So we had no idea if it was going to be good, if it was going to be, you know, just some, you know, like crappy Nickelodeon show or whatever. Um, but we got asked to do it and we're like, hell yeah, why not? Just like one of those opportunities. Um, and the thing obviously became this, you know, pop culture phenomenon. Sure. Um, so yeah, it was just everything like around that time with Delilah blowing up on the radio, doing iCarly, it was like literally the perfect storm. Like two th- between 2006 and 2008, like we've never worked so hard and just been so all over the place. Like I honestly think the summer of 2007, like the summer of Delilah probably like took years <laughs> off my life because we were... <laughs> just nonstop, man, just going, we would play, you know, two shows a day, soundcheck parties, go around during the day to three different radio stations to give them all their acoustic version of Hey There Delilah, which was already a goddamn acoustic song, you know, (laughs) and then we would get on an airplane to fly to the next city, literally sleep on the plane, land, and just go instantly to the next radio, you know, the next wave of radio stations and it was crazy. Like when the song became number one, like I don't think I heard it on the radio once it, aside from like walking by some like random like stores at the airport. Like that's that was when we heard the song, you know, we were just so on the go and just so uh, just busy and working our asses off. It was crazy. You'd think like the years grinding, touring, living in the van, you know, making enough gas money to get to the next city. You'd think that's the hard part. But in reality, it was like having the hit was like we were working way, way harder at that time. You'd think it would be the opposite, but no way. So were those fun years or were those just like balls to the wall work years? Like definitely I mean, work. both for sure. I mean, yeah. it was, you know, it was balls to the wall working. But dude, I mean, it, it, it's like that's the dream, right? To be able yeah. to to go and play these shows and to play for crowd. I mean, to go sing your song on the radio, I know I'm bitching about it, but like how fucking cool. <laughs> well, that's why it, I asked you, know? you. Cause like, I think yeah, a lot of times the, we hear the opposite, the you know, it's like, yeah, that's what everybody's shooting for. But then when they get there, is it worth being on that plateau, you know, that pinnacle above everybody else? So it was totally, worth it. Yeah. it was definitely worth it. Yeah. And I mean, of course you get super tired and at times it's like, Oh God, I gotta go. You know, why do we got to go on this awesome radio station right now and play the song to millions of people? Oh, it's so lame, you know, but <laughs> we definitely, I mean, I especially am, I'm always an optimist. So I'm pretty much always able to see, uh, 
you know, the silver lining in situations or see the, you know, st- take a step back and actually see the situation. Uh, so while there were moments of, you know, moments of just being so tired that I think we were, you know, a little bit grumpy, uh, there was never, never really anything that, that I didn't realize was like, man, this is pretty fucking awesome. Right. That's, that's so awesome to hear. I mean, that's, it's cool though. It, like everyone knows it's work, but at the same time, it's, I mean, that's what you do it for. Like you're, right. you're doing it Absolutely. to be there. Um, Absolutely. And, and that whole positivity thing, like I, uh, Caitlin, the one that hooked us up, uh, she actually asked me to go and watch one of your Instagram live performances. I think it was, it was actually on the night of your birthday. So I remember oh, nice. being yeah. on there. It was, it was the night of your birthday and you did like a release of uh, Zuma beach or uh, was it a release on that night? It was you were yeah, something exactly. New? Dude, you come with like a lot of energy. You're like bouncing around, playing the song, singing the song. Your son was there with you. It was really cool. <laughs> um, so if anybody like go over to your Instagram, do you do that uh, all the time? Is that something that's like weekly or? Yeah. Or so just I've for been that doing, release? Um, so on Facebook, I've been doing a weekly thing with Plain White Tees called the Wednesday Club. Every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Central Time. I go on and I, I do like a little live concert, just acoustic, uh, five plain white tea songs and the fans vote and everything. It's super fun. Uh, trying to keep that, you know, since we can't tour, obviously trying to keep that community alive and just connected. Um, and then, yeah, with million miler, I usually go on either at Higgy pop, which is my Instagram, or I go on million milers, Instagram, which is million dot miler dot music. Uh, usually I'll promote these events on both Instagram. So if you follow one, you'll, you'll see about the other one. Um, and yeah, usually every, every two or three weeks I'll do like a dance. I call them dance parties. Cause I basically just make like a little eighties playlist. And by the way, Spotify, or I'm, I'm sorry, Instagram is always like flagging me. I'll get these like warnings, like you're playing copyrighted music. We're going to shut you down. So then I got to like pause the song and like talk for a little bit. And then I'll like go back and play. Uh, more. That's why people do it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just like, I just have fun with it. Play a bunch of 80 songs, mix in a few million miler songs and yeah, literally just dance and like, just, I don't know. It's like, man, it, it, especially in, in this year, I know things are starting to open up again. Uh, and you know, shows are going to, I think this summer things are going to start kind of, you know, people so. are going to leave their houses again and feel comfortable as the vaccine rolls out and everything. Um, but I mean, basically it's been really fun to figure out these ways of still staying connected and being able to entertain people like, you know, with my, with my phone and just with the following that we have on the social media platforms. Um, It's definitely a weird, different experience, but I think I'm going to like, even when things open up, like, I think I'm going to keep doing this stuff as much as I can, because it is so fun. Yeah. And and it's intimate too. I think fans really dig it when you do stuff like that, because it feels they're not sitting in the crowd they're yeah you know, you're seeing their messages and and things like that it's cool absolutely like it is that. really immersive and you know we're connected i mean probably more you know even though we are at our separate homes or whatever probably more connected than being at the concert you know right because it's like yeah i'm actually seeing like oh what's up spunky alex like i know who <laughs> you are from meeting you at that one plain white tea show or whatever the case is and now we have a, you know, a little conversation and yeah, in a, in a weird way, it, it almost has brought the connection with me and fans like closer because of all these little intimate things. So yeah, definitely. 
Sure. That's awesome, man. And dude, thanks again for coming on. And uh, Caitlin already scheduled you. You're coming back again in May. Oh, hell yeah, dude. Nice. So, so you, I think you worked out perfectly. You got the game. You, you figured everything out. And uh, this was really fun. Thanks again, bro, for coming on. And uh, this will be out uh, next Wednesday. And oh, cool. we'll be in touch. And we'll, we'll see you again in a couple months. Hopefully, by the time you come back on, we have the video set up. And that's going to be 10 times better. Yeah, this mustache is going to get you guys good ratings, I promise. You know, it's, that's the key. By then, I'll be touching my ears. <laughs> you guys will all be like, okay, we just need a bunch of like Beatles and Goonies. Uh, what can we find? <laughs> Strict pandering to the judge. Yes. Man. All right. Well, awesome. Yeah, I had fun, man. Thank you guys so much. This is so cool. Thanks, right, a lot, thanks Tom. again, Tom. Be well. All right. See you Have guys. Have a great night, man. You too. All right, duelers. Well, unfortunately, we're going to have to end this episode right here. But don't worry, if you've missed an episode, you can always head over to DuelingDecades.com where you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, really everywhere podcasts are available. Now, like Man Crush was talking about earlier, you can always go over to Patreon.com as well and check out Dueling Decades there. We'd, we'd appreciate it if you support the show. You can go to, over to our Facebook page and join our private group and uh, you can share some of your very own retro memories with all the other duelers. So until next time, we're going to bid you a peace, love, light, and a joy. Have a grateful week, everyone. Podcast New York. Podcast New York. Be heard.